Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Well, except for your Lizzo collection. Those tracks are already alive. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. like to welcome to now hear this annabelle jones annabelle thank you for joining me today thank you for having me annabelle is a uh, an accomplished singer songwriter and uh podcaster now annabelle you have the lucy and annabelle show that you do with your co-host lucy walsh Uh, do you want to tell the people a little bit about what they can expect on the lucy and annabelle show yeah well first of all couldn't do it without you Uh oh fabulous wonderful producer it's a team effort um (laughs) and what the lucy and annabelle show yeah i mean we started out basically lucy walsh her dad is joe walsh who's in the eagles and my dad was in the monkeys my dad was davy jones and neither of us have ever really been friends with any other kids of rock stars before so we were really struck by the fact that we got along so well not because we've never met any of the other ones we just have never like bonded and we laugh a lot and we have such a similar experience and a similar perspective that like only really the two of us can relate to because it's a strange way to grow up on the road and (laughs) with you know a very absent yet very kind of in your face ever-present father figure and you know, it's just such a wild way to be raised. And so we just figured we would chat about that. And we're both singers and, and songwriters and Lucy's an actress as well. So we talk about our careers in the arts and the places in our life where those things have crossed over and we've crossed paths without knowing. And, you know, that's kind of how we started with that in mind. And then, you know, as your listeners may or may not know, and November my husband died and my best friend and since then it's been totally changed direction I mean we still talk about our families and we still talk about the arts and all of that but you know we talk about grief a lot and life and spirituality and death and it's kind of taken such a different (laughs) such a different I don't know what the word is it's I basically thought I was going to do like a funny podcast about being (laughs) 
the child of a rock star and now here I am doing like a spiritual emotional self-help podcast which was never my intention and Lucy loves it because she's (laughs) a self-help queen she loves all this stuff and I'm just so English I'm like well just rub some dirt on it you know have a beer and just get on with it it's ridiculous stop talking about your feelings Uh, you know and now here I am spilling my guts on the pod but um yeah, it's just life. We get together every week and chat about grief and what we've been doing and funny things and sad things and crazy things. And and people seem to like to listen. So, yeah, well, I've, you know, even learned a lot listening to the show and listening to you two talk because, yeah, you know, there's the Lucy side and there's the you side. And it's funny, I normally when I'm listening to it, I find myself relating to your perspective, you know, especially in the turn that the show took after Brian's death and Max's death, I found it to be actually super helpful in working out, you know, sort of my own feelings about that stuff. And, you know, listeners to the show are very familiar with Ryan. You know, he, he was uh, the co-founder of this show and, and we did those, those tribute episodes. And so I would encourage anyone who's interested to give it a listen because Annabelle's perspective and Lucy's perspective is just really, it's been very helpful. And actually speaking of educational, one of the things I was most delighted about with working on the Lucy and Annabelle show was getting to know both of your musical careers and God damn, I love your music. Like (laughs) I feel like at a certain point you don't believe me, but like I text you often. I'm just like, this song rules. Like what is like, no, I love that. No, I do. I believe you. I just am so, you know, as you know, from listening to the show and editing the show, the Lucy and Annabelle show, I've had such a complicated career and relationship with my with my music and my art and my journey and my experience that now in the wake of, you know, this, these two huge losses in my life, I'm sort of reconciling. And it started before losing the guys and Max and Ryan and I spent two years, the last two years, working together on various different projects, their projects and mine. And and our whole mindset was, our catchphrase was, is it unfucked? <laughs> because I felt so fucked for so long in my career and I felt so, wait, can we swear on this show? Yeah, fuck yeah. I swear. Okay. God damn it, swear. I know. Um, so I just felt so fucked for so long. And in, in my um, experience that's, that I had within the major label system, I became so damaged. And so my songwriting became so small and so uh, self aware. Yeah. And that was a, has been a big wound for me in my life. And, and Max and Ryan over the last two plus years, it's been our mission to, to, with everything we do in our lives, to become unfucked. And they started that process with and for me. There's a song called The Highlands that you've heard that I haven't put out yet. That was the beginning of that process. And it kind of went from there. And so I was fucked. And that's why I don't talk about it too much. <laughs> and that's why I don't. I've had so much in a conflict about owning the music and owning the experience and owning who I've been as an artist because I've had so much shame kind of surrounding it but you know as you and I discussed I went back and listened to it all recently and I had such a crazy moment of feeling 
almost like I gaslit myself into thinking that this thing I'd made was just shit and and it it wasn't and it isn't shit it's I'm really proud of it actually and the record that I'm talking about is LaBelle yeah which we're gonna talk about here today yeah some detail that's what brings us to this conversation is me listening back to that and confronting my shame that I have in my life and that had been a big thing for me and and I feel so relieved now to be not feeling shame about it and to be having this conversation with you and be happy about having this conversation with you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I So when I started working on the Lucy and Annabelle show and I was listening to you talk about it, you were saying these things like, you know, this this is an incredibly damaging uh, time for you and stuff. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But I remember texting Ryan. I was like, is it going to offend Annabelle if I tell her I like these songs? <laughs> and he was like, no, you should tell her. I was like, but she seems really mad about him. I don't know. Like, I really like these songs. He's like, tell her. She'll be happy to hear her. I was like, okay. And that's what I, I was telling. I told you throughout yeah. the process. Like, yeah. these songs fucking rule. Like, again, it's hitting my sweet spot, that indie rock crossover in the music that is is hitting on the things that I really appreciate. I think you and I had this conversation. It was like it reminded some of your approach, or at least your voice in a way, reminds me a bit of like Kate Nash, or artists like that, who... I really enjoy and I you know mm. Ryan always used to make fun of me for only listening to sassy lady music and he didn't love female um driven music I think because women were such an enigma to him like he just was like I don't understand what this creature is and I don't sure. know how to like interact with the art <laughs> well I guess I can relate to that idea but I've I don't know I guess I just gravitate toward female singers and, and songwriters and rockers for that very reason I'm like oh that's how I relate to. Oh, okay. That's yeah, Ryan's, Ryan was more of a sort of like Thin Lizzy kind of chap. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to give him shit. He used to, he kept bringing me sad piano guys and I kept bringing him oh, sassy guitar yeah, ladies. Yeah. But anyway, so I love your music. I love this. Uh, well, it's sort of like an extended, it's like an EP, LaBelle, right? It's like sort of a yeah, long an, form yeah. EP. But before we get into how LaBelle came to be and you as a solo artist, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about Bluebell yeah. and a little bit about that band because, again, I'm listening to these songs that I you'd sent me one for the Lucy and Annabelle show, and then I wound up downloading anything I could find. So, like, Bluebell fucking rules. I'm like, this is great. Like, I love this. So tell me a little bit about that. I, it's got a similarity with your solo work, but there's a slightly harder edge to it, you know, a bit more yeah. guitar. Tell me about that band. So Bluebell was myself and a guy called Charlie Westrop, who is a man in England who had been my boyfriend when I was in my sort of late teens or maybe early 20s. I can't remember. I'm rubbish at this stuff. I've had a lot of boyfriends, so it's really hard for me to <laughs> exactly place when they were. Um, well, uh, <laughs> Charles was one of my favorite boyfriends and actually one of the only boyfriends I've ever stayed friends with. Top five? Um, top five, yeah. Top yeah. five, okay. Shit boyfriend, great friend. And I don't think he'd mind me saying that. Um, <laughs> and we're still close. You know, we still chat a lot. So we reconnected. I did some demos. I sent them to Charlie. Uh-huh. And before Bluebell, I was in a band called Lady and the Lost Boys that I'd been in since I was 17, 18. Twenty-five bucks, it wasn't enough. 
Lady and the Lost Boys broke up. I took a minute and I did a song called Normal Heights. And I wrote this little demo in this room I'm in right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I was a long time ago now on my nephew's toy piano. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, I wrote Normal Heights on that little piano. And that summer I wrote a bunch of different things. And I sent them to Charles when I got back to England and said, you know, what do you think? And he loved them and he could see the potential in them. And I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to be in a band, a traditional band anymore. And so we went back and forth on some production and I, you know, we did a couple of different vocals and, you know, we just kind of played around and, and sent things back and forth. And then Normal Heights came to be. I heard it and I was so blown away by it. I have to be honest, I don't fre- I don't frequently feel that way about my own music. I write my song, I write my music, I record it, and I almost never think about it again. Yeah. But there have been a few songs in my career where I've been that have touched me. Like even myself I listen to it and I think wow, that's a good song that makes me feel something. And Normal yeah. Heights is one of those songs. Is playing it different than listening to it? If you struggle to go back to stuff, do you ever sit at the piano and play a song that you wrote? No. <laughs> like, <laughs> I literally will write the song, yeah, and then it's gone. Like, it comes out, and then I don't even remember how to play it anymore. It's really strange. I've heard that a bit from artists and I don't know, I struggle with that. I guess I'm more the type of person who wants to go back and analyze everything I did and use it as a snapshot and stuff. I actually really admire people who can create the art and then give it to the world and then divorce themselves from it. Yeah. Um, it's something foreign to me. I get it. I totally get that. I mean, the never-ending art piece is a real problem that creatives have. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard for us to stop and go, okay, I'm ready to deliver this thing now. I think it's a strength, though. I think it's a strength to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a strength. It's a discipline. You know, I'm mm-hmm. big on discipline, you know, emotional discipline. And these pieces of art, they're extensions of us and extensions of, of who we are. Well, guess what? We never stop growing and evolving. And, you know, now more than ever in my life, I understand that truly. Because having lost Ryan and Max in the way that I did, that we all did, my relationship with them, my relationships with each of them is still growing and still evolving. And so now it's even more profound for me, the understanding of stepping away from a piece of art, because once you put it out, that's like a stamp in time. You can't go back and change it, even though you're changing every day. And that's hard. It's really, really hard because it feels like there's this version of you out there that (laughs) you're like, yeah, that's, not me I don't yeah. <laughs> like you know because we're changing all the time we're growing and changing yeah. all the time it's like a photograph exactly exactly but so much 
more profound than a photograph I think with, with a piece of art and especially with music for me is your image you can change if you're fat you can lose weight if you don't like your lips you can make them bigger if your teeth are crazy you can put you know it's like you can change your hair you can change this and throw the photo away but when you've published a piece of art a song or a drawing or painting or anything like that it's unchangeable yeah I think that's where the conflict comes potentially for people yeah it's also like a matter of ability at a certain point too because you know some artists work their whole lives to be able to write a decent song Mm. and then maybe don't want to leave it but i feel like there's a certain crossroads where your ability can like outgrow your need to want to go back and do it again because like you kept writing and your songs kept getting better it's not like you got to this place which i would consider a very great place in your songwriting but then you continue to grow a lot of people don't do that a lot of people just sort of stop or don't know how to do it again so i think that it's also speaks to your abilities as a songwriter that's a really nice thing to say and it's making me really think actually about all of this i think that's a big part of who i am that i'm discovering at the moment is that i do kind of do you know anything about tarot cards not terribly no me neither i'm just sort of like getting into them not even getting into them Here we go. So I have Jenny Lewis tarot (laughs) cards here. Amazing. I love that. The main thing, I've I've never known anything about tarot until recently, but I've always loved the imagery of them, of all the different decks and, you know, the history of tarot and everything. It started as a game for like the upper classes and it was never a a spiritual thing. It's kind of morphed into that. But um, there's a card called The Fool Uh and my mentor he was my therapist and now he's it's something else now and um I speak to him every week as though it's it's still therapy and he pulls cards for me when he feels to sometimes and he pulled the fool for me a few weeks ago and it made me cry I I burst out crying because the fool is going in again and again with an innocence and a naivety and almost childlike wonder into life again and again and again and and it made me cry because it's a humiliation of a sort to be built that way, to get knocked down and to have experiences that seem like they could break you, but pull yourself up again and go, well, I'm going to try again, I guess, you know, and it's a lovely thing about myself that I'm trying to learn to love, but it's humiliating. It feels like a a great humiliation that I've lived with my whole life. And you kind of feel like people be like, oh, this bitch needs to sit down and stop <laughs> you know, like, it's like, I, I can't I'm not built that way I will pull myself off my knees every single time and wipe the fucking mud out my eyes and just and yeah. go okay let's try again <laughs> like, it's just how I'm built and yeah from you you saying that to me about the music it's just it hit the fool in me because that's why I stopped for, for five years or, or six years as I have stopped making music. I haven't released anything really since LaBelle. I've put a couple of songs out, but I haven't done a project since LaBelle because I felt so humiliated. Like I can't get up and do it again, you know, and I can't write again. What if it's never good enough again? What if I can't, I don't want to be humiliated and people be like, well, you know, she's She's not very good anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's all subjective. I mean, I'll say a couple things to that. Like, 
that's the universe, right? It's like um, cycles and even fucking stars, right? They, <laughs> like they're born, they die. Yeah. They're born, they're born again. And uh, if you're really lucky, you become a black hole and get sucked into whatever the next plane of existence is. So the cyclical nature you're talking about, I think, is just nature at a certain point. I will also say, like, I'm talking to the person who wrote Spiritual Violence. And, like, <laughs> that song fucking rules. So, like... Thank you. That's the first... That was my... That's my first unfucked swing of the sword right there. It's... <laughs> I got news for you. It's really good. Like, I don't mean to come off as like a super fade here, but I'm like, I heard that song. I was like, oh my God. No, it's nice. It's really mean. It means a lot to me to have you say that. And it's not, don't, there's no like super fan. But, no. Yeah. It's like, it means a lot to me as a friend and somebody that I really trust. And the way that you love music and the way that you analyze it, I, you know, even if you and I wouldn't agree on a song, it's like I trust your opinion massively and respect oh, it. So I like to hear you say that because I respect your uh, like critical thinking around music. I love that song. That shot to the top of my playlist right away when you put that out. So that's just a great example for me of not only can you still do it, but you can still do it better than you did before. And I hope that the rest of that project sees the light of day. There's an album. It's just Max and Ryan and I made it together and we were just about to put it out. Um, well, that yeah. And so it's... I just got to get my head around it. I got to get my head around that. I know. I know. It's so much. It's so much. But you know what, though? And we're, I'd like to move on to LaBelle here, too, because I, w- I want to talk about this record. But I will say, I love this artist named Margot Price. And she toiled for a long time in shitty clubs and, you know, the old story, which I'm sure that you could relate to at a certain point. And then she experienced some really tragic loss where she lost a newborn she lost a baby and she got arrested and she was thrown in jail for the weekend and she wrote this album called midwest farmer's daughter channeling all of that pain and stuff and then people like related to it and people also the story became a part of what was appealing about the music her story became intrinsically linked to yeah. the, the songs so i think there's actually a power in that so i hope it i hope that new record is released one day because the story of like and i was following it at, again editing the show lucy and annabelle show i was hearing you talk about i'm finally ready to do it i'm finally ready to do it i'm finally and then yeah boom yeah now we're actually this conversation you know when but back going back to Bluebell, my uh, band fell apart, whatever, and 
I wanted to do this project with Charlie. We did Blue Bell, we made these songs. And very quickly, I had a lot of attention on that project. I put this song out on SoundCloud. Yeah. And it just ripped through the internet. And I was like, whoa, like what is happening? And I've got labels calling me. It was like the classic <laughs> tale. Yeah. You know, I went to New York for the weekend and was wined and dined by Atlantic Records the first time. Right. And, um, <laughs> and you know, the whole thing. And I became an industry darling. But nobody knew what I looked like. Nobody, you know, it was it, the whole thing was the whole thing was a mystery. And um, that song is about being in LA. Well, there's the line: "You're LA trash." Yeah, right? yeah. So the boy <laughs> I was dating at the time, or kind of dating on and off, whatever, he had a Tumblr called Mad Thirsty, and he still runs it. And it's like a very popular kind of photo journal. And he is this beautiful boy model stunning kid from Ventura and I connected with him on the train I met him on the train and it was just born from there and we had this lovely kind of teen romance thing and I went back to England and we it was went on for years and I would never let him photograph me and put me on on his blog <laughs> Because I didn't want to be like the other girls. Yeah. And that's what, what that is about, that song, and and feeling less than these other girls and feeling like I could never, feeling like the fool, you know? And um, we did Bluebell. We put some songs out. We got this, we got management. We got all this attention. And as soon as industry started getting involved, it became such a miserable experience for me. And that's yeah. been the story every time. Yeah. I've done the same thing again and again and again and again, hoping for this different experience and actually that project ended in, in tragedy charlie lost his brother oh really young we were really young and i think his brother was 26 or 27 at the time and it was just a freak accident like ryan and and it, it stopped us in our tracks and we couldn't really we couldn't come back from it really so then i disappeared again for a while and he did and yeah i disappeared went back into my shell and came back out and did the Annabelle Jones solo project from that. And it's just been kind of the same story like that, like again and again. And I, I'm ready for the uh, story to change. <laughs> the, the, or the <laughs> next chapter. Put right? this record out, you know, I got, I'm not yeah. going back in my shell again. It doesn't work for me. I've done it three times now and, yeah. and it hasn't worked for me. So just, I need to like keep swinging. Well, the, thing i love about bluebell is that your style is very evident still and what would wind up becoming your solo music but i almost was thinking of it as large stones in a creek and your style was sort of hopping from stone to stone yeah and so you get these little bursts of you in there yeah where this current of a little chuggier rock was sort of underneath and i actually really appreciated that not only because I love your approach, but because I like the juxtaposition. And I like the juxtaposition with the rockier thing. Keep me warm 
I loved Paramore and I loved female for like um, metric and you're a metric fan. Well, I mean, I tried to twist Ryan's arm to listen to that shit. You're never going to get Ryan to be into that. You know, that song wet blanket. Yeah. Like that whole world and whole and these kind of female fronted rock women. I could never exactly get myself dug into it, but Paramore was one for me that I loved. And yeah, and that I could immerse myself in because it had a strong pop sensibility to it and almost like a gospel thing, which just is irresistible, I think, to most people. And and then also I was coming from a place of somebody that absolutely loved, if I'm going back to my influences now, at the time I wouldn't have described it as such, but now looking back, I can see that it's very much kind of massive attack, fat boy slim, all of these like very beat driven. Yeah artists that were really formative for me without me really even realizing it I would mm-hmm. never have, have described them as an influence but so it was kind of like Paramore Electronica that was my yeah aim there and I like what you're saying again thank you very much because you're pulling back the layers of shame for me I was so ashamed of my genre switches and my you know, I was told many times, like, we're just a bit confused about the direction. Going <laughs> this track. And it's like, and for me, I was like, can't you tell it's me? Like, these are just, yeah. different. I'm just trying to feel my way around. And I think when you, when you get into the system, the major label system or the label system, they want you to be the thing that you are because they know how to work it. They know how to sell it. They know that people like it. They don't want you going off and exploring and um finding different parts of yourself like that and putting it on record because that's true that's hard for them to tell people what you are yeah it's like i point to i was gonna drag ryan through this but i became an unabashed swifty in the last year ah don't get me sorry you and i can have a fight about this Uh, i was gonna i was gonna (laughs) drag ryan through it by the way you can drag me through that one (laughs) that will be a spicy episode so she oh, i would love to do that we should definitely do that because I, I would i have many many thoughts but she switched genre fairly abruptly the pop shift was accepted by people who felt like you're saying they could sell it yeah. and then the shift to kind of this neo 80s dance slash rap, rap thing which was my preference because <laughs> i expo- i appreciated her pushing i wanted to see her push right. and get to a different place and i appreciated the spot primarily because it all sounded like 80s mccartney to me it's like yes that. oh wow interesting yeah. uh but anyway it was almost universally rejected <laughs> and and i think it might have been just a case of like well you've got this fan base and they're accustomed to one thing and so you have to stay in that space otherwise we don't know how to sell it back to those kids um, I mean, what the, the fucking Beatles went through it. They grew mustaches, and then suddenly the teeny boppers were like, they look like old men. It's like, actually, they're 25 or whatever. I know. God, I always forget how young the Beatles were. Yeah. And I remember, I'm just like shook to my core. <laughs> I, know. I know. Imagine being that <sighs> brilliant. At 22 or whatever. It's just <sighs> magic. Wild. Anyway. That's genre switches. I have so much to say about the Taylor Swift thing. And I'm seriously going to do an episode. I'm biting my tongue so hard right now because I'm just like. <sighs> Literally, I'll talk to anyone for hours about Taylor Swift. So like, I would love, love, love to do that. Okay. And that means I'm going to have to like listen to all the music, which is fine. I'll do it. <laughs> Again, um, subject myself. All right. So let's talk about LaBelle. 
yeah. let's talk about how the Annabelle Jones solo career started. Now, when people go back and listen to the Lucy and Annabelle show, they will definitely hear some explicit detail about the extremely shitty deal that you got into for this record, which, you know, I mean, I don't know if you want to touch on that a bit or just yeah, give I'm it. I'm really happy to, I mean, it's all part of the story and it makes why I kind of disappeared all this time make sense. You know, it's important to talk about. I basically hooked up with these songwriters and producers shortly after my dad had died and I just needed my life to change. So I came out to LA, took a load of meetings and hooked up with these two guys, ended up signing a production and publishing deal with them using my Bluebell demos. And then we made these other tracks and, you know, it all started out beautiful and and wonderful. And I was really happy at first, really, really happy because I was being allowed to do me. Yeah. We made this song called Magnetic and it had the normal heights effect. It got people excited and got a lot of attention. And, and the, when you sign a production deal, the aim is that they develop you and then they basically sell you on to a, to a major. It's basically like fixing up a house and selling you on. And that's what they, they do with, with artists when they sign a production deal. Blood on blood, back to back. Magic's only real accumulated. Magnetic was the first kind of breakthrough song that we had that we made and we were just like, when you write a song that is special, you know it. Everyone in the room knows it. There's a moment of you're kind of looking at each other like, whoa. Yeah. And we had that moment with Magnetic and Magnetic had the normal heights effect in the sense that it got people excited, we got offers and it started the ball rolling on on Annabelle Jones solo you know i like to call it now <laughs> i've become so cynical annabelle jones tm um <laughs> so that got the ball rolling on annabelle jones tm and that was really hard for them to let go of that song because it was so not anything that these two guys were used to making or producing and and it was so raw and there's no drums on the song and yeah. you know which i didn't even realize until like two months after we wrote it, I was sitting there one time and we were talking about putting it on the radio and they were like, well, we can't, you know, it's got no drums. We need to put drums on it. The radio stations won't take it. And I said, I'm not putting drums on it. <laughs> good, good. I'm not fucking putting drums on the song. If they don't want to take it, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's like almost acapella. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. We put it up. Well, <laughs> okay, here's my first mistake. <laughs> oh, God. There's a lot of this. There's been yeah. a lot of this for me in the last few months, me really looking at my life. And But I leaked the song. Whoopsie. Uh-oh. Um, because they, they wanted to do things their way. And I was like, nah, use the fucking dinosaurs. You don't know how it works anymore. Good. I'm putting the fucking song out. Good. I'm glad you did. Is that why that has a different image? Yeah. When it's, Yeah. Yeah. It's like you basically almost, it looks like you're giving the finger a little bit. Not really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you are. I'm like, in yeah, even yeah. that 
Fuck off, yeah. <laughs> Here it means peace in England. Yeah. <laughs> so classic young Annabelle energy. Good. Fuck you energy. Good. So I said, yeah, I just did it one night. I fucking put it out. Damn right. Emailed all of my blogger relationships. Because I, I was like, if I'm going to break the rules, I'm going to make sure that I do it right. So I, in the darkness of night, I put the song on SoundCloud. I sent the link anonymously to all of the blogs that loved me, Annabelle Jones leak. Yeah. And it went right. You know, it went, it blew up. Amazing. They were like, pull it down, pull it down. I'm like, no, you can't pull it down now. (laughs) 24 hours. We've got, we've already got blogs. This is when blogs mattered. Yeah. It's very rock and roll. Love that. We've already got blog posts. People have already heard it. You can't pull it down and do glitzy artwork and do this whole thing. I said, come on, just like have courage. Let's just do this. That's my energy. That's who I am. That's the fool. From that point on, even though we succeeded with that method, yeah, it was like they wanted to control me more than ever at that point yeah. because they could see how right wild unruly i was well no you asserted control you yeah you took charge and that made them look stupid and yeah. you know listen as speaking as a white male ages 18 to 35 we don't like to look stupid at all no. <laughs> you're very you've become accustomed um to look, being the, the king of the castle look yeah. this mustache isn't going to grow itself okay yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> um yeah no you're right you're right i undermined them put the song out and that is one of the only other songs you know as we as i said before that i am like wow what a great piece of music and and normal heights and magnetic for me are you know if i could have a song on my gravestone (laughs) they, they, they would be on that but again it's another kind of weird song like normal heights is so dry it's not really structured there's no chorus well well, let's talk about the batch so is this all the writing being done post bluebell or is this some holdovers from yeah okay no it is no it's all completely new i re-recorded a bluebell ep and then i was like i this isn't me anymore i can't do this so we re-recorded and we started from scratch and magnetic was the first song that we wrote yeah wow okay so Five came out on the EP. Was there a larger batch? Was there ten and ten tons of songs? Yeah. So have any of those ever? They've never come out. And can can I hear? (laughs) Yeah, I'll send you everything. I'd love to. Unfortunately, part of the hangover from that bad deal and that relationship going bad is that none of that stuff has ever come out. And I'm hesitant to say that it will never come out. I don't want to say that because. That makes me feel sad that I put so, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours into making, you know, this album, a couple of albums worth of, of music here. And um, and it never came out. But yeah, those five were kind of the top five that we went with. Wow. So on this show, we have a tradition called Paul's Bullet Corner, where I summarize the album we're talking about with weird poetry. Yeah, would, I remember this from when we did our couples episodes. Would you indulge me? Yeah, we've done this three times and I still don't know how to fucking do it. I don't understand it. Good morning. I'm going to be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. So I am going to summarize the album 
with three bullet points. Uh, weird poetry. You don't have to do it. Although it would be amazing for you to do it. Yeah. All right. So the first one I have here. The glorious and defiant gnash of teeth. Wow. Okay. Go off. Gnashing. Bullet point number two. A machete through your diary. Yes. Slice that son of a bitch in half. Yeah. Just slice it. Wide open, yeah. Bullet point number three. A righteous and quiet thunder. Oh, I love that. There's a righteous quality to the record. There's a sarcasm to it as well, but it's also like primarily a meditation on how ridiculous certain constructs are Mm. and how we're just going through these weird motions, it seems, and especially through your life experience, seeing exaggerated forms of some of those constructs in the form of fame and the things that go along with that. And, um, and so there's a sadness about it. There's a sadness, like, like it's sad that we're going through these things, but there, you also seem a bit bemused by it all. Definitely at that time as well. I was what, 23, four, I don't know, early twenties confused. Great with time and numbers over here in case you can't tell. (laughs) I was really sad. I was really, really sad at that point in my life. The whole record is about family. Yeah. Those songs are about my parents. And there are little bits of romantic love in there as well. Yes. But mostly it's me regurgitating and, and working through again and again and again different dynamics of my relationships with my parents and and family on the whole. And um, the sarcasm... Yeah. I mean, that's me <laughs> forever sarcastic. I, in my dying breath, I'll be sarcastic. You know, it's just, I'm very, I'm a very sarcastic tongue in cheek person, but yeah. you're not wrong. You've picked up exactly what it is, you know? Even though I can't relate to all the things you're talking about in there, you do make them feel universal. Yeah. I don't know. It just hits, it just ticks all my boxes, the approach, everything, the production. Let's talk a little bit about what the studio recording process was like who was producing the material with you? Because from what I understand, that was actually not a bad process. That was actually some fun. I loved the recording process. It was me and this guy called Andrew Goldstein, who is a a songwriter and producer out here in LA. I met him through my production deal. He and I just were in the studio for hundreds of hours. We would go in there every day for months at a time and throughout the week. and, And we would just sit there and just do it. And then, we would do three songs a week. Usually we would make three songs a week, two, so, three songs a week. Just the two of you? Or you had musicians in there with you? So it was just the two of us. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And that was the writing process, him and I. Yeah. And he was going through some shit at that time as well. And we would just go in there and funnel all of our energy. I, I believe from conversation, he and I are no longer in, in contact, but... I believe from conversations that I had with him that, that that it was a positive experience for him because he was, it was a type of music that he wasn't getting to do in the rest of his life and the rest of his, his career at that time. Yeah. So I think that it was cathartic for him in that way. And we would go in midday until six or eight, or you know, and just be in, in the room for that long. And we would record the vocals as we wrote 
it was really important to us that the emotion of that vital moment when the words come to you and the feeling comes to you, that is the sound that we hear when we have our vocals recorded. And we thought about going back and re-recording them at the end and we even tried it, but it's just nothing held a candle to how they sounded in that moment. Yeah. For that reason, some of the vocal performances aren't the best, but they feel really good. Yeah. The other half of the recording process is that we actually produced that record with Jimmy Tamborello, who is the producer for the Postal Service. Yeah. And he is one half of the Postal Service. And we were just talking about Jenny Lewis earlier with the tarot cards. There you go. (laughs) And um, so for me, that was a dream come true. I couldn't believe that this man was wanted to work on on my project i couldn't couldn't believe it this is a band that was really the postal services was so formative for me as a teen i have a vivid memory of being at a boyfriend another boyfriend's house in notting hill in his mother's muse house lying in bed and looking out and there was a string quartet practicing opposite on a roof And we were listening to the postal service at the time and it was sunset and that moment was so beautiful and i remember thinking god this band is so incredible and if i could only be this i'm staring at the asphalt wondering what's buried To then have him working on the album with us was like, yeah. I'll never get over it. <laughs> like, I will never, ever, ever get over it. And especially yeah. because he doesn't take meetings with people. He doesn't work. He doesn't really collaborate. He's not interested. He's a very, he keeps himself. Yeah, he's not interested. He's done his thing. Doesn't want to do it. But for this, he did. And so it was like, it's amazing. I felt like I'd coaxed a magical deer. <laughs> and it was letting me sit with it. Yeah, yeah. And that was beautiful. And the way that that process worked was really interesting. We said to him, here are the stems, do anything, anything. We don't care if you turn it into a six-minute song, we don't care <laughs> if you get rid of everything. We don't care what you do. We want you to do you. Yeah. So he, we would send him the songs, and he would send back these creations that were like... Yeah, like little sculptures almost. Dude, crazy, 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 crazy shit. He has a wall of synths and things that he's built himself. Yeah. And he does everything manually. He's plugging shit in. He's like, <laughs> like a scientist in the lab. I don't understand how these things work. I can just tell you that he's not in there doing this on a computer. Yeah. This is like a synth that was like the first synth that was built. And he's fucking plugged in. He's like robots fucking shit everywhere. <laughs> You know, you go in there and you're just like, oh, what is this? <laughs> and so he would go and do his bleepy bloops, we called them, and <laughs> send the bleepy bloops back. And my little two-minute song would now be a 10-minute masterpiece. And we would take his stems and we would whittle them down. And we would put the puzzle. So the songs had three, yeah, yeah, four stages. My demo of just me on the piano, the version of us, Andrew and I together, crafting yeah. it into the next stage then the jimmy stage and then the edited pulled back refined version 
Wow. Every single one of those songs went through that. So Magnetic went through that too. Magnetic is the only one that didn't. Interesting. So that was that was you guys with the uh, the vocal effects and stuff. Yeah. Because I thought maybe that it sounded consistent with the rest of the record. Had he heard Magnetic? Yeah, he had heard Magnetic, but we used his production as the prototype for what we wanted to do. Yeah, I think that might be a snake eating its own tail thing too, because I think I mean, and this is just me surmising, but I would imagine that he would have heard the approach you all took on Magnetic. Uh-huh applied it to your the other songs it totally is yeah (laughs) round and round and round and that's how the whole process was yeah the whole process making that record was incredible yeah and getting to work with those two guys who are just profoundly talented in what they do in such different ways dream come true yeah i mean i don't i i don't know what to say about the recording process other than that i mean the one thing i can and share is that I really struggled with the vocals sometimes I would get in the booth and I would just freeze and it was almost like I cared so much about what I was saying that it was overwhelming to me and then I just couldn't perform and that's I've only ever had that with that one record where I would get in there and I'd freak out and Andrew, bless him, coached me through it. And there would be times where we would literally have to go outside and, like, go for walks. We would hit a ball a lot with a, a baseball. Yeah. To get me out of the spin that I would get in. And then go back in and then we would deliver. And and that was really interesting as well. And a great lesson for me because now if I'm ever in a writing situation... Well, actually... The lesson is, is that I'm a pacer. When I write and record, I'm walking around, I'm doing other things. I'm <laughs> there, but not there. Yeah. I like to be, it almost to be like subconscious, like it flows through and yeah. that's how I get the best result. I owe you. I'll make you so sad, I know that I do. You came across blind, you came across blue. I treated you bad. Neglected your mood You nearly went mad So I cut your eyes loose loose. You talk about your vocal I mean, and, and I think I mentioned the acapella thing earlier or something But like, your vocal is this track in a way Can you tell me a little bit about how you wrote IOU? IOU was a co-write with Andrew Goldstein and Camden, who is the artist behind the Chain Gang of 1974, and another friend of ours, Rami, who is a, a great a great songwriter. We went in that day. We were just fucking around. I wasn't taking it seriously. I was just being silly. I felt like my record was finished, and... This was just a co-write for the sake of it. You know, I was in LA and then that's what they make you do when you're there. You're in sessions every day. So went in with these guys and we made IOU. And I really struggled to talk about this because I don't want to be disrespectful to the other writers on the track. Sure, yeah. yeah. It's, um, I mean, no disrespect to them. And I mean, no, none of this reflects on them in any way whatsoever. Objectively, the song is good. They were amazing and are amazing and did exactly what we were in there to do. The difficulty with that song for me is how it changed my life. 
and it took my life in a different direction that I didn't want it to go in. And all of a sudden it was a runaway train that I couldn't control anymore. Interesting. Is that the track then? Because there's there's the one, right, that you don't... That's my one. That's my Ah, other cost. So I was wrong, actually. And I'm happy to hear that because I like the the one I thought it was. I thought you hated, or not hated, but... Which one? I thought you were going to talk about Happy as being that song. No, Happy is a result of that of IOU but happy is me doing IOU in the way that I want to do IOU I fucking love that song it's so good (laughs) that's the hook I mean the hook on both of them are strong and I I, you know IOU it's yeah it's like got a hip-hop bouncy kind of and the reason it's hip-hop is because we were at this recording studio called Chalice where all of the hip-hop and rapper guys used to record so every day I would be in Chalice and Future's beats were coming in through the wall. He'd be there. Puff was there. Puff, he did he, Puff, whatever the fuck he is now. Chris Brown would be in there. Just the list goes on and on and on. And these lads would pull up in their cars into Chalice with their <laughs> lean drink, not Puff. The girls would be in there. You know, it was the whole scene. Yeah. So here's me making the bell. <laughs> this, 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 this indie record. Yes, in the studio, in my own little world, being passively stoned, the whole place is constantly, (laughs) you know, just like sharing the bathroom with these legendary rappers and hip hop artists and writers and just little old me, just like, (laughs) it was crazy. Really looking back, it was a wild, wild time. If you can hear it, it totally was a subconscious thing because uh, that's all I was hearing all day, every day for years. Yeah. And that's what IOU is. It's okay. me absorbing the sound of the studio with these guys that I wrote it with and just going like, ah, fuck it, let's just do something stupid and crazy. And IOU is the albatross, yeah. It's the one that, that changed everything for me in a way that was really bad for me as a person and, and as an artist. And it made me write myself off. You know, because they heard that song and they saw, oh, commercial, this is commercial. Yeah, yeah, well. This is going to take her from being, you know, our little our little indie pet to, fuck, like, is this going to be, you know, can we Charlie XCX this? And it's like, no, I'm. let me be the indie pet. Uh, that's, yeah. well, I- I'll never forget one of the conversations that we had about IU after it came out. I was sitting with the guys that I was signed to at the time and I was like, this was the wrong decision yeah. to put this out. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? So offended. We made a bad choice. This was a bad choice that we made to do this. No, it wasn't. Such eager about it, such attitude about it, instead of just being like, yeah, you know, we fucked up. Again, white males, they don't like to be. Oh, <laughs> yeah. One of them said to me, you know, we saw the dollar, whatever you want to saw, we saw that this may have like virality and we took a risk. You know, we took a risk. And the way he said it, I'll never forget because to him it was nothing. But to me it was, you just took a risk with my life. Yep. You just gambled my life. Right. You've got 10 other artists so you can move on. This is my life. And, And that was kind of the beginning of the end for me with my relationship with them. And I lost trust for them when that song was focused on and, and put out and, I know that Andrew Goldstein felt the same way. He, It was a polarizing song and, and we were not confident in it as being an, an Annabelle Jones song. 
first of all, let me say that song is literally about me that week bumping into another ex-boyfriend at Lassen's in Echo Park. Top five or no? no. Bottom five? Uh, actually, yeah, top five. Top five. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. And <laughs> he was like having a baby and he was married and, you know, just like all nicey, nicey, grown up, fancy doodles. And I was just still. <laughs> hot mess express coming through town and <laughs> i could see we went to lunch after that after i saw him at the grocery store and he just looked so unhappy the whole time and it was like i was making him unhappy and that's that line in there i make you so sad yeah. i know that i do it's i kept thinking to myself why do you talk why are we at lunch why do you talk to me why are we doing this you look at me and you, it's like you're sad like I'm hurting you by existing. And, and that's what that song is about me being like, yeah, well, you fucked up too. It's like, this is on both of us. This isn't just yeah. me. It takes two to tango. Right. And me feeling like I owed him something. It's like, no, I don't know this man. <laughs> anyway, this is what that song is about. So, yeah. But I, f- I find it interesting that you think it was money, love, success. Oh, no, I thought it was happy. Oh, sorry, not happy. Sorry. Yeah. yeah happy. Yeah, no, I thought it was happy just because that was the one that was out there. And it seemed like, especially getting to know your music, initial searches point to that tune first. So I assumed that it was that song because it is very commercial. It's a very commercial yeah. sounding song, which I actually love. And in fact, I probably heard it because wasn't it in, it wasn't Forever 21. Maybe it was Forever 21 or H&M. Yeah, they had me on all of those, any big store. Yeah. Playing, yeah. Yeah, so I I had probably heard it wandering around in H and M with Susanna or something at the yeah, time. Definitely, it was like Forever Twenty One, Coach, Zara, all of those things. They have like radio stations and yeah. labels for artists and on those stations. But I love that song. It's that's like a commercial to me in a good way. Like sticks in your head, boy. It's hard to get that one out. You were on Perez Hilton? You did yeah. the Perez Hilton Yeah, I did that. that. I did Perez and I did that song. And I think I did IOU as well on that one. I just love that approach. So that's you doing an impression of IOU. <laughs> no, that's just me. Like, IOU just isn't me. That's yeah. me. IOU is me doing an impression. But the sensibilities of my songwriting that are in IOU, that are authentically me, is what you would see in Happy or Money, Love, Success, yeah. if that makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pop sensibilities, that is what you're going to see in in Happy and, and, and Money, Love, Success. I think Happy for me, I wonder if the reason that you feel that way also is Happy is the only one that's about romantic love. Maybe. There's a pleading quality to it, obviously, because yeah. you're, you're, I mean, you're literally pleading in the hook. Like you're saying you need the happiness, but... There's a futility there. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's um, that was a relationship that I was in. I'd been in for six years. It was like a childhood sweetheart, and this man was, you know, a great is a great love of my life. And he 
was really struggling with addiction and, and depression at that time. And our relationship was really strained and it was going to be me and him. Our parents knew it was like, you know, when um, like royalty, they <laughs> promise this child to another child, you sure. know, they marry them off. I'm like, these two are going to get married. when they're yeah. old. There's like a goat exchange. Or uh-huh. something. Yeah. Yeah. That was me and him. The pet, it was decided upon the community understood it to be as such. That was the plan. And so that was that relationship. And when he started to really suffer, it was really hard because it was like, whoa, I thought my life was going to be this thing. And now it's not. And I couldn't let go. And I needed to let go so badly. And tell me something happy, don't make me sad, is me begging him to just pretend. Just pretend. Can we just pretend to be happy for a day? And can you just pretend not to be sick for a day? And can't we just be in love again and and can't things be okay? Like, are things ever going to be okay? And that's what that song is, is it's, there's another line in there, which when I listened to to the album again recently, made me feel so sad is I'd play our song if we had one. God, Jesus. I'd wear your shirt to keep me warm. Yeah, God, such a sad end to what was such a beautiful love and, and friendship and, and I couldn't save this man. It's just a brutal sentiment. I mean, but I think it's why I relate to your music so much is because I know what that situation is. I, you know, not directly, but in a way that pretend, let's just pretend thing strikes a chord in me. Mm-hmm. I think everyone who's ever been in love and in a relationship that hasn't worked out has has had that feeling, you yeah. know. Can't we just pretend? Yeah. Once, you know, or... Or wasn't it nice when we just pretended? Yep. Wasn't it nice when we were just out at that dinner with our friends and it kind of felt... Yeah, right. God. (laughs) I know, it's savage. It's so... But that's why I like it, though. You can count on me to literally write the fucking saddest shit you've ever (laughs) heard in your life. There's a solidarity in it. There's a comfort to, to hearing somebody else talk about it, too. And it's not just even romantic stuff, you know? I mean, I was just having a conflict recently with a family member and... It's just, I was thinking to myself, like, yeah, I've pretended mm. to make it better. Now that you know that most of LaBelle is about family relationships, maybe you can listen to it with a new um, yeah appreciation. Because it is, it's all about my mother and my father and their relationship and, and their dynamic with me and my childhood. Well, that brings us to Money, Love, Success. So that if I had to pick one track that I was gonna pin on, you know your relationship with your family or i guess your dad specifically or the idea of fame success that's the track i would have said i mean not just because of the lyrical content but there's also i mean even some of the effects chosen i'm not sure at which stage those effects came in but there's almost a rapid fire camera lens closing effect that sounds a bit like paparazzi and stuff success is about my relationship with my dad and his relationship with his life and and me and the people he loved and tried to love and 
my dad would come and go from my life frequently you know he was a touring working musician and I wouldn't see him for months six months a year you know that was a completely normal part of our life so my parents were divorced anyway so that was you know already there was that level of separation you know I wouldn't speak to him for six months and I'd go to bed one day and then I'd be woken up at five in the morning my dad would be carrying me out of bed downstairs to make (laughs) me breakfast this gives you this dynamic with your parent that is magical this is a magical person that appears and disappears it's like santa claus yeah exactly and i never had normal uh, experiences with my dad i think i maybe went to the cinema with him once ever we did a couple dinners together but everything that we did together was extraordinary it was riding through the woods on our horses or touring around the world or being at arenas or you know it was all magic all the time that is not a grounded way to have your first male relationship yeah it's not a grounded way to raise a child it's not a grounded way to grow up and it was all symbolism and and romance you know that was my childhood and one thing that comes to mind is he was so hard to pin down that he would say he was going to come to the house or come to England or whatever. And my mom would, would never tell us because she knew that he might not show up. But I learned as a child that if there was ginger beers in the back fridge, that my dad was going to maybe be coming. Wow. Or I would check the back fridge all the time to see. And that was the giveaway because that was his favorite drink. Yeah. Really strange way to grow up. And, He would come, we lived on this little compound, multiple houses on it, and he would be in a different house. He wouldn't be in in our house with us. And so, you know, I'd go over there and that's what this song is about, is um, about going to his door. Yeah, yeah. And he had told me we were going to go camping in the bottom of the field and I got to his door and he was all bleary eyed and he didn't have a shirt on and he was sleepy. And I remember looking at my dad and thinking, wow, what a handsome man I've got such a handsome daddy it's so nice you know like you know how little girls idolize their parents and their father you know little girls and little boys do and like a prince or something you know I remember thinking oh he looks really tired but he still looks really good and magical and he's still a handsome prince you know that would be how I would look at my dad even when he would turn up looking shit it was like oh is he still let's just check if he's still all right and I turned up with my little bag of camping supplies, just literally we're going to go to the bottom of the field and like camp and have a fire, you know, pretend. Yeah. Um, and he was like, oh, you know, I'm tired. Come back later. And I remember, God, it wounded me so deeply because I packed our little bag with everything that we needed in it and I'd waited all day for him. And my heart is beating as as I say this to you and remember it. Um, and he sent me away and... I came back later and we did go camping and we had a lovely time. And Well, that's good. I was about to be very mad at him for a moment there. <laughs> I mean, I'm still kind of, but I'm happy you got the trip in, you know. He made me wait all day. and um, But we eventually he came and got me from the house and we went to the bottom of the field with my little bag and we got down there and I had brought with me some beans, wow. Heinz baked beans, very English, and um, an axe for chopping wood for our fire and um i'll never forget i had it in this like nylon duffel bag and some bread we were going to toast bread and a pan 
And we got down there. And my dad like unpacked the bag. He's like, what have you brought? <laughs> and he was like, no tin opener. <laughs> and he looked at me. Oh, no. And he like laughed. He was laughing at me. And I could have, I felt humiliated. I could have cried. He saw oh, I was about to start no. crying. And he's like, it's all right. We've got the axe. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> he good. put that tin of beans down on the wood and he axed open and oh, exploded. And that. the beans went everywhere and his bean like got me in the face. And we were, like, we were, <laughs> I remember we were laughing. We were laughing and laughing and laughing. There was enough left that we had our little beans on toast. Whatever, but... That's beautiful. That's beautiful. But I, I did. I felt so, you know, growing up on tour and all of those things, I felt so outside of him and you know there's that lyric in the song in your world I felt so lost and I felt so swept up in the fray I was he would come off stage and he'd be exhausted and sweaty and angry and moody and you know tired and then he would go and, and I didn't understand why my daddy didn't want to be with me when he came off the stage you know I would run up to him and well done like you did so well, just so proud of him and, and excited by how wonderful he was and all the people cheering him on. And he just, he didn't have it. He couldn't, he needed to be alone for a bit and, you know, drink a Gatorade and just calm down. He's done something huge. And as a child, you don't understand that. And there was nobody to explain it to me. And yeah, that should have been worked into the routine that daddy comes off the stage and you see him once he's had a shower and he's already, but you know, it wasn't, we just, we were just getting by all of us. No one knew what they were doing. My parents didn't know what they were doing. You know, you just, you get by like any parent I think does. You make it work with, with what you've got. And the money, love, success line of that song is me feeling so lost in my own world at that point. Yeah. And the major label system around all these people and doing all this stuff. It was like, wow, I was having the experience again. But this time it was, I was my dad. And I was short-tempered and I was snappy and I didn't want to be around people. And and I was diva-like and I was that ugly thing that the music industry created in him. Now it was in me as well. And money, love, success, these are the things that we do best is, is absolutely tongue-in-cheek sarcasm. We do it terribly. We lose all of our money. Right. We don't handle success well. And we don't know how to love each other in a healthy way. And that's what that song is about, us muddling through, trying to work our way through this crazy industry as a family and and, and failing miserably at it. tragic symmetry to what you just said in terms of you absorbing that although i I suppose that connects you to your dad yeah absolutely it made me understand him so much better and and that song is me just working that out me going like fuck like i i understand my dad now so differently and i forgive him and i love him you know it was healing for me to go through all of that industry stuff myself because it made me close to my dad in a new way like I loved him more and saw him more well that that explains the dichotomy that I picked up on in it and I 
when I was thinking about the lyrics and thinking about the song, I was thinking, yeah, there's that sarcasm to the premise, you know, the idea that yeah. all of these things are kind of hollow or done poorly. But there's also an undercurrent of like, yeah, but you're trying to get them. Like, there is a need to have even the hollow thing. And I guess some of that dichotomy is maybe just you connecting with your father in that way. Even though you know intellectually it's wrong, emotionally, there must have been something special about touching that again. Yeah. Gone from the situation. Yeah, definitely. It's an irresistible pull. It's... Yeah. When somebody offers you a record deal and invites you into this world of parties and the Chateau Marmont and... Yeah. This producer's going to change your life and come sit on my lap, sweetheart. You know, all of this. <laughs> it's, it's an irresistible pull. And on top of that, for me, it was irresistible because it made me feel closer to my dad. Yeah. I wanted to experience something with him because I lost him so young. We didn't have a lot of experiences together. You know, we had plans. We had finally gotten our relationship into a really good spot. And we were about, uh, here is the theme of my life. We had just got things in order and straight and good. And and then he died, you know. And this was my way of, one of my ways of reconnecting with him. You know, you, you know, I go and see the horses. He left a lot of horses behind. That's another way. And another way in, in this grief that I'm experiencing now of Ryan's death and Max's death of, being with those horses, I used to be resentful towards them, but now I sit with them and I, I understand my dad now so much better. He lost his mother when he was 12 and his dad as well and never dealt with his grief. And I understand now that so much of my dad's behavior and pain and inability to love and what kept him out on the road until he dropped down, you know, was grief. He hadn't processed his grief and hadn't healed the wounds inside of him. And so... I'm going to do that. Yeah. I'm going to do that for me and I'm going to do that for both of us. And, you know, I wasn't aware of that when I wrote When He Loves Success. I was still so in the thick of my grief. It had just happened, but losing my dad had just happened. But, um, you know, that song is, it is sad. It is a really sad song and it's a bit of a fuck you to my dad as well. You know, it's it's me getting the angst out and, you know, that synth bit at the end that's so oh, yes. crazy, but... I love it. <laughs> that is for me the ultimate angst in the song where it's like, have you ever just felt so much energy in you that you just like go crazy and dance and you and it's like almost like being in a mosh pit. Like that synth rip at the end for me is that feeling in a sound. Can I fix you? My dad was not a good dad. He was a shit dad, but that's okay. It's okay. It, it's He did so much good in this world and brought so much joy to so yes. many people and changed so many lives. Does it suck for me that as a result of that, I lost my dad? Yeah, but I'm not the important one here. The effect that he had and the joy that he brought and the love that he brought to the world 
yeah, okay, I didn't get a great dad. Yeah, whatever. It, it's a it's a worthy exchange, and it's one I would do again in any lifetime. I am proud of him for his effect in the world, and the man that you saw is him. Hit the private side of him that was tortured and in pain and suffering with manic depression and all of these things that was real too yeah and was he a great dad no was he a great husband no but all of the great stuff that you guys saw is real it was real that is was his greatness an incredible performer an incredible dancer an incredible singer an incredible actor a great communicator and sharer and showman and he would give you the bite off of his fork and put it like he was a good man. He was flawed. Yeah. Like any of us, but I just, that was the deal that we got. And that's fine with me. I remember the last time I saw him perform was at the Royal Albert hall in London. And it was such a profound experience for me because I'd seen him perform. I mean, probably thousands of times (laughs) when I saw him on that stage at the Royal Albert hall, it was like, it was the first time. Yeah. He was so good. His voice sounded, I just remember thinking, his voice is incredible. He got better and better and better and better and better. He was obsessed with being better. He never, ever let his voice get away from him or his health or his, you know, I mean, I say this, the man died of a heart attack, but he took such good care of himself because he, wanted to be the best he could be to do the job that he felt he was put here to do, to give you guys the music and the joy and the love that he, that was his role in this life. And he knew it and he took it seriously. Well, to just unpack a couple things. I mean, you mentioned you're not the important one here. I would disagree (laughs) Uh, because you're doing the same thing. I, you know, I feel lucky that I have, his music and that's what's so beautiful about art and music in particular is because you can put your humanity out there i know he wasn't writing all the songs but his humanity everything about him was in those songs and that's what i'm so impressed by in your music because you took it a step further and there's so much humanity in your music like it is intensely human (laughs) But in a way that I can really relate to, you know, I mean, my dad had a, actually, it's, we don't have to go into this, but my dad had a heart attack around the same time that your dad died and my dad survived. Mm-hmm. That changed my life, right? Just, I mean, even the act of that changed my life, but I wouldn't have had his songs to remember him by. So, I mean, it's, uh, we're fortunate, you know, that we have. Yeah, very fortunate. And, you know, he was, my dad was a gift and it wasn't the gift for me as his child that I wanted or deserved by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was a gift you know and it's given me a different life experience no I didn't really get a dad in the traditional sense I got something totally different I got magic you know yeah. I believe in magic in a way that maybe other people don't because it was very real to me yeah and yeah, I think there are similarities and that the older I get, the more I see like, oh, there are little tones in our voice and little things that are similar. And But anyways, going back to Money Love Success, that's what that's about. And it was nice to get that like 
angst out. She'd be like, get fucking down. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't really, I didn't get to do my teen years with my dad, yeah. you know, because he was always working in a way and we didn't live together. But so that, that was my little, uh, fuck you, dad. <laughs> well, well, we'll move on here to, to not today. Bottom of the bowl again, light taking its toll again, slept away the day, nothing ever changes. I only ever see you in the dark. Me here too again, tell me that you're you again, human and complete, blood, bones, flesh and weakness. I only ever see you in the dark. In the dark, in the dark, in the dark, in the dark. This one had more of a romantic tinge to it. I got the impression that this was a romantic partner you were talking about here. No. No, not a romantic partner. Okay, so I only ever see you in the dark. Is that your dad showing up to take you downstairs? Yeah. And also, it's also talking about seeing people in their worst moments so like my mom or my dad in depression you know like or in sadness or struggling or suffering it's me saying obviously I was young at the time and and I didn't understand a lot of things about life but there's that classic thing that I think people do when they live with somebody who's an addict or suffers from depression and when that person can go and go to dinner or go out in the world or and and turn it on and, and get through that and then they go home and and then the person that you're with is a dark, unhappy person. Yeah. And it kind of makes you feel like, well, why can't you be that person for me? Why can't you be the happy lady that you are when you pick me up from school? Why can't you be her when we're at home? Or why can't you be the man that you are on the stage or at the meet and greet? Why can't you be that with me? And that's what that line is. Bottom of the bowl again, life taking its toll again. Slept away the day, nothing ever changes. So that's the the first verse. Bottom of the bowl is at that time when I was recording, I was eating a lot of Cheerios. I still do love Cheerios. <laughs> honey nut Cheerios. And, uh, honey nut, that's the preference yeah, there. Like, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. You're a fan of the blueberry. I love the blueberry. I haven't tried it. Seems suspicious to me. <laughs> Not interested on in that bastardization of my cherished honey nut cheerio. Well, I'll give it a try now that you've suggested it. Yeah, I'll respect now, yeah. you. I will give it a try. Getting to the bottom of, I was just eating a lot of syrup, like mixing bowls. You know, I just get home from the studio and just be on the couch, just like, uh, and I would eat a tub of ice cream, <laughs> mixing bowl of cereal, and um, slept away the day. It's talking about again watching people suffer with depression and nothing ever changes and I only ever see you in the dark is me just being disappointed with my parents and processing not on the whole can I just say like this isn't my whole life they've been like this this is when I sit down and write a song I'm processing specific moments and periods and time at this time my mum and I were having some time apart I know it sounds like a strange thing to say about your mother but I get it I get it my mum and I had decided that it was best that we didn't speak for a while and that was the whole time I was writing this record and that my dad had just died. And so I was feeling like I had a lot to, to get through with my parents and the space from them both was allowing me to confront things and feel the things and the angers and the disappointments that I 
had suppressed in order to maintain healthy relationship healthy <laughs> lol um relationships with them <laughs> yeah nothing ever changes that's me kind of just exploring that meet me here at two again tell me that you're you again human and complete blah, blah. that's me asking my dad to come back to life i'll take oh. you blood bones flesh and weakness i'll take all of it even the shitty bits if you'll just come back yeah. to life and be with me i only ever see you in the dark like in my dreams so frequently i'll choose lyrics that label multiple different expressions for me so i only ever see you in the dark literally at night i only ever see you in the dark in your depression i only ever see you in the dark in my dreams that's what i only ever see you in the dark means in this song the next bit is me writing about writing you know i tore out the first page hating every word that I say. <laughs> Yeah. So turn up later, you're at my door holding flowers that you have bought just for me. That actually is a really interesting, completely like me, like shooting back years to something that seems so not connected to this story. But this boy, this French boy, I met him at a club. I was living in a house alone that my mom had just built. And I spent a lot of my childhood and teens alone. And um, I was living in this house, taking care of this empty house. And I was young and you know, I should have really been with my family, but whatever. And I was lonely. I was lonely living in this house in London. And I met this boy at a club, this French boy. And he was like, I do not have anywhere to live. <laughs> and I was like, well, I want you to come home with me. Well, naturally. Not in a boyfriend way. Surprisingly, this wasn't a boyfriend. I have a real, my whole family does. Big problem. We, we will... The strays, they will be coming home with us. <laughs> Human and animal form. It's a, it's a real curse. And also sometimes a nice gift. Some of the best people that we've ever had in our lives have been some strays we've picked up. But So I brought this man home and he lived with me. And he would bring me flowers because I didn't make him pay rent. I just wanted him to live with me. I just wanted to company. So, and he would bring me flowers. And I remember there were these flowers that we had on the kitchen countertop for a long time. And I let them die and they sit there. And I don't know, I was just touched that he would bring me flowers all the time. And, and I was in this empty house and I wanted my family and I wanted a normal life. And instead I found a French boy at a club and took him home with me. <laughs> so that's what that line is about. That's I, me just like projecting into another time. I think that's what was giving me the romantic... The flowers yeah, was thrown yeah, off there. Yeah, yeah. I know it was romantic, but it wasn't, Yeah, you know, like um, romantic in that way. And then I remember one time when he brought me the flowers, I just couldn't feel happy. Um, and that made me feel sad. <laughs> I couldn't feel happy and that made me feel sad. What a stupid thing to say. Um, but, uh, I get it. You know, I get it. Those were the flowers that I kept in the vase for a long time. Was specifically those flowers. I think I was just trying to, yeah, understand. Wrapped up in the view again, living just for you again. Lost all sense of self. You say you did it for your girls. That's about my mom. She has this view out of her bathroom window that overlooks the fields, and I would watch her putting on her makeup or getting herself ready in the morning and looking out at the view. Typical parent will say, everything I've done, I've done it all for you. And me just being like, why, um, why am I still in pain then? You know, it's it's just me as a young person not having the tools to, to understand that my parents were people. 
You know, yeah. these are people. They are not perfect, magical, infallible creatures of God. These are just people who hurt and live and think and feel and don't feel and shit and eat like the rest of us. And, and you know, it's that very childlike mentality. And I feel that we do it as I still catch myself doing it with my mom where it's just like, but why can't you do it for me? Or why can't, you know, it's just that stuff. I don't think we ever grow out of it. Why can't you understand? Or why can't you love me the way I need you to? Or, you know, all of that stuff instead of just going, well, this is a woman who's in pain and right now she's suffering. And, you know, that's what I would do now. But at 23, I couldn't get my head around that. It was all me, me, me. Why aren't we right? Why aren't we healthy? Why don't you love each other? Why don't you love me? And can't you get better for me? You know, the moral of the story is that it's been a big lesson for me and it's a big lesson for a lot of people. And it's a lesson that a lot of people never learn is guess what? Sometimes your parents can't love you the way that you want to be loved and need to be loved. That's your lot. That's the deal. That's the, that's the deal that you got. So it's up to you to love you enough for the both of you. And that has changed my life. Like most of your songs, it's a beautiful and sad <laughs> sentiment. Sorry, I but... like such a bomber show, but no, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. I, I again, I find it's it just is what it is. Like I just have to, like I can't like pretend the songs aren't about what they're about. No. It was during a time of like deep pain in my family and like crazy shit going on, and uh, it's why I like them. The sentiment is why I like them. I find them very relatable. Again, there's that camaraderie in it. There's that, yeah, you know, this person understands, you know, and that's the power of music, right? So let's talk about the last track here on the EP, Magnetic. We talked about this one a little bit and how that one was the gateway yeah. uh, to the project. But one of the highlights of the song for me is uh, the bit about, and I mentioned this, the drugs that you're taking are killing you so, and then the voice kind of yeah. gets all psychedelic and funky yeah. and cool, and I just absolutely love that. Blood on Blood is family, mm. into family warfare, Blood on Blood. Back to back is the way that it can switch between, at the end of the day, it's like, as soon as somebody else comes for your family, you'll go back to back and have each other's back. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and fight whatever is on the outside of you at yeah. the end of the day. Magic's only real accumulated. That was me just questioning about my dad and the magic that I felt around him. And is it just an accumulation of stories and events that make it feel like magic, you know, or is the magic real? Or... Yeah. I was feeling a lot of fear and anxiety in my life at that point, as well as all the stuff going on. I was also breaking up with that guy and my anxiety was... I actually don't really suffer with anxiety anymore. I've managed to rid myself of that and also depression for the most part through therapy and other kind of therapeutic actions. But at that point, I was really, really, I don't even like saying my anxiety or your anxiety. Anxiety isn't any of ours. We're not born with anxiety. It's not a pathological issue. It's something that we learn. It's a habit. And I was deep in the habit. I was deep, deep, deep in the habit. I was beside myself with anxiety and I felt under attack by outside forces even though I knew that it was like inside of me 
Yeah. Fear will always find a way to prey upon the open and the pure. And I felt open and pure and the fear was ruining my life, this anxiety. And this song is also about eating disorders. So I had an eating disorder when I was younger. And then at this time, I just before I'd left to come and make this record, I'd been spending a lot of time with a friend who I could see was starting to suffer with an eating disorder. And I was really struggling to help her and not get myself pulled back into old habits. Yeah. Obviously, when you're around somebody who's actively having an eating disorder and you've had them in the past, it's quite difficult. I hate, you know, I hate this word triggering, <laughs> um, but it is, it's, it is triggering. It's very confronting and it, it makes it yeah. very easy to be like, oh, maybe if I just think this one thing or do this one thing, it'd be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like this demonic voice in your head. And this poor girl was suffering and walking miles and miles a day and and I love walking it's something I've always loved and I think I started doing it when I had my eating disorder but it's turned into another thing for me it's now very therapeutic and meditative and I'll do it in the middle of the night but for me 4am is I was in LA she was in London you know blah, blah, blah. Right, right. so she would text me and she's struggling and I was trying to help but I can't help her and this song is so such a swirling of things at the time. Like I imagine it like a whirlpool, but above my head, all this imagery and people, and it was confusing, and there was so much suffering, and I was suffering, and we were all suffering, and my friend, my friend had just had just. This is the saddest episode. <laughs> my friend had just killed himself. It's good. It's like good. it's just like. My friend had just killed himself. My b- boyfriend was a drug addict and alcoholic. My friend was having an eating disorder. My b- ha- my dad had died. My mom didn't want to speak to me. It was just a mess of a time. I can't say it was anything other than what it was. Um, and I was desperately trying to survive and like swim through this. And that line was to all of us, baby, you got to let go. The drugs that you're taking are killing you. So I can't remember if I said so, slow, or soul. I hear it different every single time I hear it. I interpreted it as so, and then it cuts off. Yeah, I think it's the solo. Oh, because it's definitely something I would say. It also has that bit of like a, in the English sense of, I love it so. Like Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like very like flowery language. Definitely me being a poncy asshole. <laughs> So that was to all of us just being like, we got to all stop this. So we're being, all of us are being crazy and we need to calm down. That vocal bit that goes, ah, ah, is in the way that that synth rip at the end of happy is like the angsty thing. I do a lot of like noise expression. And that for me was just like me making a sound to get all of this tension out my body. And that's what that hook is, is is a, is a sound of me, like as a tension release. It's the highlight of the, maybe of the, I don't know about the album, but I love it. I mean, it's just, it's like what I guess Yoko Ono was like doing, in my opinion, like not great all the time, but like using her voice like a guitar or something, using your voice in, in yeah, an instrument. as an instrument. Yeah, way. And yeah. I love that effect. That awesome. I love doing that. I love doing that. I love feeling my voice in different parts of my body and exploring different tones and and ways of using it to express what I'm feeling or to accentuate a lyric that I'm singing or writing. And that's what that is. And then your body is moving to sorting. That's obviously it is what it is about the eating disorder shit and death and the transformation of body and spirit into this other thing that we don't know. And magnetic is just being drawn in by all of these forces and all of these people and trying to, 
maybe push yourself away sometimes and you can't you're drawn into patterns and you know things that you maybe don't want to be but you can't help yourself um and then in the second verse darker days will clear the sky yeah this is my little hopeful little self coming through the floor <laughs> getting back up getting off my knees and going okay we can, <laughs> we can do it let's try again darker days will clear this the sky now this lyric i had had written on a scrap of paper and i had been carrying it around with me since i was 16 wow shed your weight like blossoms in the springtime i wrote that about myself during my eating disorder and i'd been carrying that scrap of paper around with me in every journal i had waiting for the right time to i knew i was going to use it and then sometimes I would lose the scrap and I would write it on a new piece of paper and shove that <laughs> in my journal. Wow. I knew that I, I needed to say it. Yeah. And that's my favorite lyric in that song. I just think it's a beautiful visual. The cherry blossoms in London, they get so fat and they burst into life and they're plump and fragrant and beautiful and just, mm. and that was that visual for me. Much less the shedding it. I was more focused on the coming to life of the blossoms and and that yeah. wanting to be the story for me and yeah. and, the, and the visual the hope of of the of the new life and the new weight and the new I don't know new experience. Darker days will clear the sky. Shed your weight like blossoms in the springtime. Brightest light you ever do. Heaven sent you out of you alive. That brings us to the end of the tracks here. Now, it's the end of you, the show. So many, I mean, uh, run down the remixes here. So Magnetic got, I think. You're going to ask me about remixes. I'm not. I'm not. We okay. have five of them. We have Casualty, AO Beats. He and I were coming up at the same time and he was gaining traction and I was gaining traction. And we just had this beautiful moment together where we worked worked perfectly together. He captured the it clicked. He captured the feeling of the song. And it ended up being streamed and played more than anything else. You know, it just hit. It just he hit the sweet spot. And for me, more than even the remix itself, it was just the beauty of being able to do that with another kid at the time that was in a similar state to me and just ha- both of us have that little push and that little moment of like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Like this yeah. is going like, that's great. Yeah. It was, it was nice to share that with somebody really, really nice who was outside of the camp. Right. Unbelievably talented. And he's still making great music. If anyone's looking for more kind of electronic kind of dancey shit to listen to, like AO beats is still out there and he is really, really, really great. Yeah, well, look, speaking of sharing, thank you, Annabelle, for sharing these stories with us today. Again, I can't speak highly enough of your music. It's beautiful and sad, but like I was saying earlier, like human is the the way I would sum it up, you know, and that's ultimately like the thing that I find most attractive in music is just truth. 
there's so much truth <laughs> pouring out of this stuff. So yeah, thank you. that's this the nicest is... compliment that you could give me, that it's human. Yeah. So thank you for t telling me that. And uh, I wish there was a physical release I could own. You, you said there's no vinyl or anything. No, I mean, unfortunately Fuck. not. I, my A&R <laughs> guy left the label the week that my record dropped. Can we get Spiritual Violence 45? What do you think? Can we do that? Yeah, we've got to do, we've got to... We've got to do this. This album that Spiritual Violence is on is going to be called Forgiveness. And it was part of a triptych that Max and Ryan and I were working on. And fuck knows what's going to happen with that That's now. Got to uh, hear it. But, the, but Forgiveness has to come out. That album has to come out. And I want to do vinyl. And I want to do everything that we talked about doing. I owe it to them. I owe it to myself. And I keep saying this. And I've got to stop saying it to myself and everyone else. <laughs> Forgiveness feels like my swan song, mm. but that's me writing myself off. Well, that's saying that there's not going to be another one. So I know. Well, let's not do that. But, you know, that's hey, bad. actually, fucking how profound that that's what I've been feeling about it. It wasn't my swan song. It was that swan song. It's the end of a chapter and a new phase. Yeah. And that's got to come out. And we should definitely, definitely do vinyl. Maybe not just for spiritual violence, but let's do an album vinyl. Yeah, let's do it. We can figure it out. We have to. And I'm going to, we've got um, Tropical Purgatory. Yeah. Vinyl ready to be pressed as well. That's all ready to go. Really? Yeah. Amazing. Well, we're going to talk about Tropical Purgatory another day. Annabelle, hopefully we'll have you back. You could talk a little bit about that album. And uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Thank I mean, you. You're no stranger to the show. This is your third time. The fourth, you get a you get a free sub on the fourth one. Oh, great, 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 yeah. great! It's a sandwich. I don't know what they call them in England. You know, if you're gonna give me a sub for the fourth one, I would. My preference would be Jersey Mike's Jersey number Mike's. seven, Mike's way. Holy shit! You were ready with that one. That was on the tip of the tip of the dome. There, <laughs> always in my mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks, Annabelle. Thank you. an opinion about the album we discussed today contact us at at now hear this podcast on instagram at now hear this pod on twitter facebook.com slash now hear this podcast or email us at now hear this official at gmail.com see you next time Hey, Brian. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology that ACAST has developed for us. That's right. ACAST has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, ACAST, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an ACAST supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. Okay. All right. Well, bye then. <laughs>